I was counseling a man one time. He had done something incredibly foolish as a teenager, something that was not just foolish, but also dangerous. Dangerous to himself, dangerous to other people. And it was something that if he had put, continued down that road, really would have ruined his life. He did it once and he got away with it. He did it a second time, made him a little bit more bold. He did it a third time and he got caught. But he got caught in such a sweet way that it scared him, woke him up to what he was doing, but it also drove him into himself and he decided to hide this thing and keep it from everybody else, even though he really needed some help. And the reason that he did that was because he was focusing exclusively on the ugliness of sin, the ugliness of what he had done. And that tunnel vision on what he had done kept him from seeing the larger picture of a great God who still loved him, who was working to redeem every last bit of his life, including the ugly things that he had done. I wanted him to see what he wasn't seeing, so I said to him, you know, when you got caught, that was actually God's kindness, right? You didn't have to get caught. You're a very smart man, but God did that in any way. That was God's involvement in his life to keep you from going any further than you already had. Because if you hadn't gotten stopped and if you had kept on going, you'd be in a completely different place right now. You would probably have a criminal record, probably would not have the job that you have, probably would not have gotten married. We would never have interacted. And this was God's kindness to you to say this far and no further. We do God a real disservice if we don't see how involved he is in every area of our life, including this one. Now, what am I saying to him? I'm saying that we humans are gifted. We are gifted at being able to work really hard to ruin our own lives and ruin the lives of the people around us. We work really hard to ruin what God is doing in this world. But that's not the whole truth, and you have to look outside of that truth. You have to recognize that God is even more gifted and that God works even harder and that God involves himself in our worlds to bring about his plans. That means that his plans always win, even when we do things that are incredibly stupid. Now, it's true, we can create some pretty big messes. We do actually have to deal with the consequences of those often, but ultimately we cannot entirely ruin what God plans for us because he's alive and active. And because he rules all of his creation, his activity overcomes even our activity. Now, that's a really bold statement for me to say. And what, what gives me the right to say that to a young man who has kept something inside for nearly half his life because he's convinced that he could ruin his own life? Where do I get off saying that to this person? I get that confidence from Scripture. You read the history of God's plan from Genesis to Revelation. What do you discover? You discover it always hangs by a thread. There's always a threat to what God is doing on this earth. And it's always one heartbeat away from going off the rails, ending up in complete disaster. People are constantly working against what God is doing. They don't have faith in him and in his plan, and they have faith in an, a, an alternative agenda. And so they act in ways that undermine what God is doing. And yet, each and every time God steps in and uses what they've done to save his people, his plans hang by a thread. But because he's involved, that thread is always strong enough to guarantee that what he has started is going to continue. And he guarantees his people a future that they are going to be absolutely thrilled with for all of eternity. And the reason they're going to be thrilled with it is because he intends to be thrilled with it. You don't ever have a picture of God in heaven upset and miserable. 
Instead, God plans to be thrilled for eternity, which means what? He's involved in each and every single one of his people's lives right now, moving, shaping, directing, all to bring about his plan. When you get on board with that, it brings you peace. See, every one of us has threatened his plans. You have, I have, we all have. We've all wanted something at different times that was at odds with what he wanted, something that in that moment seemed more glorious to us, more important than what God was doing. And because we wanted that thing, we put his plans at risk. We put his plans at risk for ourselves individually, and because we are part of his larger church, we put his plans at risk for his church. And God's response is not to tuck himself away safely in heaven and just sort of wring his hands and moan because we've screwed everything up. Nor do you have a picture of a God who's out of control, just sort of raging in heaven. Instead, what do you see in the scripture? Often, without a lot of fanfare, God rolls up his sleeves and gets involved with his people's lives. And he does that because he loves them. He loves you. He does that in order to put all of our lives back on track when we have taken them off track. Now, how do I know that? It's on every page of scripture. Let me take you back this morning to Genesis chapter 16. If you have a copy of your scripture, let me invite you to turn there. Genesis chapter 16, this is a chapter where God's plans for his people hang by a very thin thread. It's a chapter where God's people want things other than what he wants, and their desires nearly push his agenda off of a cliff. And I want you to see in this passage how easy it is to get out of step with God. But I want you to see even more how God responds to his people when they're not at their best, when they're out of step with him. I want you to see how he doesn't blow up at them, doesn't run away from them, doesn't start over with someone else. Instead, I want you to see that he enters into their world in order to set them back on track. Now, as I read through here, I'm going to read about Abram and Sarai. You might be more familiar with them as Abraham and Sarah, but this is the passage that takes place before God changes their names. Reading from Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai's wife took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Abram mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. And we'll pause there in the chapter. You realize that Sarai has this plan. This plan is doomed from the very beginning. That would actually be more clear to you if we had been reading sequentially through the book of Genesis. In Genesis 15, just one chapter earlier, God had come to Abram and repeated a promise to him and said, I'm going to reward you. I'm going to bless you. And effectively, Abram turns back to God and says, that's really nice, but... What good is that going to do me? I don't have anybody to be an heir, and so anything that you give me, any reward that you give me, is going to go to my servant, Eliezer of Damascus. 
And God comes back to him and says, I'm not simply going to give you stuff, things to inherit. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to give you heirs who will be able to inherit what I give to you. And I'm going to give you more descendants than you can count. They're going to outnumber the stars. So basically, in chapter 15, what is God saying? He's saying, your servant is not good enough to fulfill my promises for you. Now, if Abram's servant in chapter 15 isn't good enough for the promises of God, you kind of understand that Sarai's servant in chapter 16 isn't going to be good enough either. It's one of those early clues that you get in this chapter. You think something's off here, something's just not right. Here's another indicator that this is a bad plan. It's that Hagar is an Egyptian. That doesn't seem like a big deal to us. We live in a multicultural, multi-ethnic setting. Think, okay, so she's an Egyptian. Who cares? Take yourself back. Moses is the guy who writes this. Who is the first people then who are listening to this? It's the Israelites who came up out of Egypt. They know Egypt as a place of suffering. It's a land of slavery. It's a land of death. You can almost imagine them cringing when they hear that Sarai's plan is to is that the promised child should come from an Egyptian. They think that, that can't possibly be true. What really tips you off here that something is wrong is when you start to realize the problem in this passage is that everybody wants something, and what they want has nothing to do with the plan of God. It starts when Sarai says to her husband, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And that's when you start to realize that the real issue in this passage is faithlessness. It's all about each of the different people wanting things, doing things that are not in line with what God wants and with what God is doing. Now, let me get something out of the way before we go too much further, uh, because I think we're going to stumble over it. The real problem here in this passage is not immorality. We're moderns, and so we think multiple sexual partners, that's really the problem in this passage. Actually, there were social codes back in the day when Abram and Sarai lived that said if a woman cannot bear children for her husband, it's okay for her to take a slave, give her to her husband, and any children that come out of that union would be counted as the wife's. It's actually, in some cases, not okay. Actually, there are some marriage contracts people have found where it stipulates if there are no children coming, then you must do this. And so, so you get the immorality issue out of your mind. It's really not what's taking place here. Think about it more as a pre-modern form of surrogacy, a way of ensuring that there are children that are coming out of the family. It's not the real issue in the passage. The real issue is what people want. And it doesn't look like anything that they want is all that bad, does it, on the surface? Think about what Sarah is focused on. She wants a family. She wants it now. She's tired of waiting. She's got this amazing promise that God gave to her husband. You're going to have more descendants than there are stars in the sky. That's not simply a promise, however, to Abram. She's also included, right? You go back earlier in Genesis, and you learn there that a husband and wife are what? They're one flesh. God treats them as one entity, one unit. And so a promise made to Abram is also a promise made to Sarah, which gives her this real conundrum. Because on the one hand, she's saying, I've got this incredible promise. This is great. And on the other hand is reality. It's where most of us always are, right? It's between promise and reality. If you do the math, Sarah's here is about 75, 76 years old. Abram's 85, 86 
looks impossible to her. Notice, however, where her thoughts do not go. She doesn't look at this and go, wow, th th this looks impossible from a physical standpoint. I can't wait to see how God pulls this off. I am so looking forward to how he's going to do this, how he's going to amaze us, how we're going to be in awe of him, how we're going to worship him. I can't wait to see how he is glorified in bringing about his promise through us. Instead, what are our thoughts? Clock is ticking. Actually, the clock is about to stop ticking, and we need to get moving on this. Her focus, then, is not what? It's not on the glory of God. It's really appropriate to understand that her focus is on the glory of herself, the glory of finally having a family. Now, on one level, that makes complete sense. You go back into her culture, it was considered very shameful for a wife not to have a family, and yet she's been captured taken over by this longing for a family, longing to have her shame removed. She's captured by what she does not have, and it's twisted her. It's twisted her mind in thinking that life is just not worth living if she can't have it. And so she's no longer depending on God and on his promise, on his character. Now she's depending on what? Her plan, her ability to scheme, her ability to generate a way of getting what she wants. What is that? It's faithlessness. Abram isn't any more faithful. In this chapter, he's actually a little out of character. You read through the book of Genesis, and you discover that Abram has two outstanding things that distinguish him. He's a man of action, and he's a man who talks. When he doesn't understand something, he starts a conversation. You get to chapter 16, and suddenly he goes passive and silent. And he goes passive and silent exactly at the moment that he needs to be active and talking. He needs to step into his wife's life and say, hey, look, we have to hang on to the promise of God here. That's what's really important. Let's go back to God. Let's ask him to give us the courage, the faith to keep believing that he'll be faithful to everything that he said he would do. Abram doesn't do that, does not step into his wife's life to help. He just goes along with her direction. So he sleeps with Hagar and she conceives. Now up to this point, Hagar is basically a non-participant in the story. You don't hear her doing things as much as things are being done to her. She's given to Abram. He sleeps with her. She conceives. All of those things are what? All of those are passive. Now that she's pregnant, however, she becomes very active. It's not a good kind of active, though. She uses her activity to despise Sarai. And again, you have to put yourself into a pre-modern context to understand what's taking place here. She's been given to Abram as his second wife, except she's the wife who can actually have children. She can give him descendants. And so she starts looking down on Sarai because essentially she's able to say, I can give to Abram what you can't. And that makes me more important. That elevates her own status. She says, basically, I'm better than you, and she despises Sarah. She looks down on her. What is she doing? She's using that elevation in status faithlessly. She's using it to harm one of God's people. Back to Sarah. She put together this whole scheme for her own glory, and what happened? Hagar took her glory. To make matters worse, her husband doesn't seem to care, and so Sarah does what I think is normal for someone in that situation— she blames someone apart from herself. She says to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong that I'm suffering. 
And in her mind, that makes great sense. And so she never pauses, never takes a step back and says, wait a minute. I wonder if there's something here that, that I did to contribute to all of this mess. Maybe there's a problem with what I asked for from Abram. Maybe there's a problem with what I've wanted out of this. Maybe the problem isn't so much with Abram. Maybe it's more coming from me and from what I've been wanting and how I've been driving that. It doesn't occur to her to think like that. She's not acting here like a person of faith. How does a person of faith handle mess that they make? Well, they remind themselves, God loves me. God cares for me. He's rescued me from all of my failures. That means I can step back. I can do a little bit of self-reflection here. I can ask, did I have a part in this? Did I mess up somewhere? Because if I did, I want to see that. It's not going to ruin my relationship with God to see that. In fact, that relationship with God is what allows me to see that, and it's the first step to straightening this mess out. Sarah, I can't afford to do that, however because she's put her hope and her trust in having a family. She's not put her hope and trust in the God who's already brought her into his family. And again, Abram's absolutely of no help to her. He doesn't step into her world and say, look, we're really going down a bad road here. We have got to stop this. We have to get off of this road. We have to get back on the road with uh, where God himself is. And we have this amazing God. He's led us really well all of these years. He's given us these incredible promises. Let's run to him. Instead, Abram looks at the marital discord in front of him and he says, I want no part of this. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to step into something where my wife is happy, unhappy, sorry. All I want is a quiet life. I don't want the hassle. And so he punts doesn't call his wife back to faith in God. He thinks, this is a mess, and I don't want to pay what it's going to cost to straighten this mess out. I'll let the pregnant woman pay. And she does. Abram says to Sarah, your slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. You get to verse 6, which I hate. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. That word mistreated is so understated, I'm afraid you're going to miss the point. I'm afraid that when you read mistreated, you kind of think something like, okay, you know, Cinderella and her stepmother. You know, Cinder the stepmother made Cinderella do lots of chores, wouldn't let her go to the party. That's mistreatment. So, you know, okay, Sarah's just a little bit mean, makes Hagar work way too much, and won't let her have any fun. What changes the way you understand mistreatment is if you read the next sentence, next verse. We didn't read that one just yet. But when you read that, you learn that Hagar flees into the desert. And you have this picture now in your mind of this, present wo this pregnant woman alone in the desert. She has no protection. That means she's at the mercy of anyone who wants to do anything to her. She's at the mercy of any wild animal that comes across her. She has no one to help her if something happens to her. She has no food. She has no water. She runs to this place where she can expect what? She can expect to die. And she probably can expect to die a pretty unpleasant death, and it's probably coming pretty soon. And Hagar prefers that option to spending one more moment in the tent with Sarai. You start to understand what Sarai is doing is far beyond evil. 
terrific abuse, so bad that Hagar preferred almost certain death. And again, if you're one of these early Israelites, this hits you really hard because you're remembering that you used to have masters and you used to be enslaved. And they treated you so bad that what did you do? You ran away into the wilderness, into the desert. The tables are turned. Everything's flipped upside down now. Now it's the Egyptian who's being abused by God's people, by one of the Israelites. This is the depth that Sarai has sunk to. She doesn't trust God to guard her reputation or her place in the family. She puts her confidence in what she can do to destroy someone rather than having confidence in what God can do to care for her. You look at all three of these people and you can't find one who does a single thing that's praiseworthy. Not a single one reaches out to God in faith to deal with the hardships of life, to deal with the shame, to deal with the barrenness, to deal with the arrogance, the complaining, the abuse. Instead, each person trusts in something other than God to get them through life. They've set their hearts and their minds on something other than him, on something that God has not given to them. And they want this other thing so badly that they end up not only ruining their own lives, but they end up ruining the lives of all of the people around them. Each one of them has a part to play in taking this community and ripping it all apart. And that's part of what God wants you to see. Because you know that you're just like that. I'm just like that. I've had times, you've had times where you've set your heart on something that you knew really wasn't the best thing for you. But in that moment, it captured you and you just had to have it. And because it captured you, you really didn't care about faith in that moment. You ran after it, and what came out of it was awful. It was awful for you, awful for the people around you. And the worst part of those moments is it looks like you've ruined everything that God is working on. Now, what is it that you need in those moments? You need a God who remains faithful even when you're not. Faithful to you, sure, even more so faithful to his plans for you. And that's the God that you find in Scripture. Let's find him. Verse 7, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much they'll be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you'll give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He'll be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he'll live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Be'er Lahai Roi. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. What do you need when you've been faithless? 
What do you need when everyone around you has been faithless? What do you need when the community has torn itself apart? What you don't need is simply to focus on how bad you are. Nobody's ever generated goodness by becoming an expert in their own badness. What you need is a great God who will step into the middle of that and bring his goodness. You need a God who will come to rescue you, and that's exactly the kind of God that Abram has, but no one's been reaching out to this God. So how is he going to get their attention and call them back to faith? He does it relationally. Look at the first thing he does here. He moves toward Hagar. Notice he does not go to Abram and say, look, we got a problem here. You need to go sort this out. Instead, he goes off to the one who's suffering. And he doesn't wait for Hagar to reach out to him. He goes to her. He initiates. Now, don't get too hung up there on who the angel of the Lord is. By verse 13, Hagar knows this is God I'm talking to. It's not just a messenger from God. This is some representation of God himself. And what is she starting to realize here? She's realizing that God is not simply the creator. He's not simply the sustainer. Who is God? God is the redeemer. God steps into broken people's lives to help, to care. And he does that by being very personal. You see that as he calls out to her, Hagar. He names her. Might not seem like that big a deal. Go back through those first six verses, and you'll discover nobody calls her by name. Instead, everybody refers to her as an extension of the household. They refer to her by her function. She's my slave, your slave. Nobody talks to her by name. God's the first one who does that. In other words, he's not out in the desert looking for a function. He's out in the desert looking for a person, looking for an image of God, an image of himself, someone to relate with, someone to engage with. It's a really big deal that he would call her Hagar in this passage. It's an even bigger deal when you learn from the Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke that in all the ancient Near Eastern literature, no other deity calls a woman by her name. What is God doing here? It's apologetic. He's saying, do you see how special I am? I don't relate to people by function. I relate to people by name. You need to take that home with you. You realize he doesn't simply know Hagar's name. He knows your name. If everyone else around you thinks you're not special, he knows your name. When you're suffering, you have to remember he knows your name. When you've sinned, you have to remember he knows your name. When you have caused your own problems and you think you're all by yourself, when you've had to run, you remind yourself he knows your name. But he doesn't just simply know your name and keep distance. He knows her name and does what? He moves toward her. He's relational, comes to interact. You see him do that, right? He does that with that very strange thing he does. He asks a question. You think, that's just odd. This is God. This is the one who has all knowledge. He's all-knowing. He doesn't need to ask a question, right? Already knows the answer. Then you look at the question that he asks. Where have you come from? Where are you going? That, that, that's a bizarre question. He calls her Hagar, slave of Sarai. He knows where she's come from. She's come from Sarai's tent. He already knows the answer to this question. He doesn't need the information. That 
means he's not asking that question for his own benefit. But she's the only one else who's out there. You start to realize God interacts with people to what? So that they relate. He sets it all up for their benefit. He comes to her. He finds her. He calls her name. He starts asking her questions. He wants to have a dialogue going back and forth with her. So different from everything else that she's experienced in life. He doesn't come to lecture her. He comes to treat her with dignity, with respect. Nobody else does that. Nobody else talks to her. They talk about her, they do things to her. Nobody actually engages her. God does. She has no place in his plan of redemption. She has no standing before him, no place in rescuing humanity. In fact, what has she done? She's messed things up with her attitude. She's upset the whole household by despising Sarai, and God in turn does not despise her. She won't give dignity and respect to Sarai. He comes and gives dignity and respect to her. And then he says something that really ought to shock you. He says, go back to your mistress and submit to her. You think, wait, <laughs> go back to the place of suffering? Go back to the place of misery? Go back to the place that you ran from because death was preferable? That can't be what she wanted to hear. I'd imagine it's probably not what many of you want to hear either. You think this is the God that we were just singing to? If you're not a Christian this morning, that probably offends you. In fact, it might offend you so much you might be thinking, you know what, if, if that's who God is, I don't want to have anything to do with him. I don't want to have anything to do with this Christianity thing. That's completely understandable that you would think that. But then keep reading. Go to verse 10 there. Because the angel of the Lord adds something. He says, I will increase your descendants so much that they'll be too numerous to count. And again, if you've been tracking with what God has been saying to Abram, you realize that's exactly what he's promised Abram. Think, what did God just do? God just said, part of my promise to Abram is going to come true through you. Other people treat you as a servant. They mistreat you. You're the outcast. I don't treat you that way. In fact, what am I going to do? I'm going to wrap you into my plans. I'm giving you a future. But if she's going to have a future, that means she has to stay alive. If she's going to have this child who's then going to wind up with so many descendants that nobody can count him, God has to continue to be, preserve her life. What did he just do? He just obligated himself to her. He just said, you're not going back to that tent alone. And then he gives her something that's going to build her faith every single day. It's going to do it multiple times a day. He tells her, you need to give this child a name. It's going to be a boy. I want you to name him Ishmael. Literally, that means God hears. Or as God explains in verse 11, the Lord has heard of your misery. And so every time that she calls out to her son, Ishmael, Ishmael, it's a reminder of God's active presence in her life. It's a reminder of God's active presence in the life of the community. Every time somebody in that community calls out to this boy, you hear ringing around the tent, God hears, God hears, and they're reminding themselves, he's here right now. He's involved. He's just given her a lifelong reminder that he has personally obligated himself to her. And all it takes is this one conversation 
utterly transforms her life. You can hear it in the words now that come out of her mouth. She used to gloat about being pregnant. She used to think that gave her status. You know what? That's not even on her radar anymore. What is it that she talks about now? She, what she talks about is God. He's entered into her world. Nothing has changed. He's entered into her world and completely reoriented everything. She's now focused on him, and she's reveling in him. She can hardly believe that he would come and reveal himself to her. He sees her. She understands now something about him that she didn't understand before. He sees her, and his seeing is so special that it moves him toward her. He's not put off by her. He's not offended at her. He sees her and cares about her, and this is so amazing to her that she turns around and gives him a name. Nobody else in Scripture does this. She calls him, you are the God who sees me. And she gives him that name because his scene is special. His scene is not sort of a casual, disinterested observation. He's not watching her like he's watching TV. He's not watching to be entertained. Instead, when God sees, God moves, and he moves toward her. She's just understood that God uses his power personally. He uses his greatness personally. He sees her. He moves toward her. He cares about her. He's a personal God. So what does she do? She engages him personally. She talks to him. You are the God who sees me. Now I want you to think with me one more time about who she is. She's on the bottom rung of the social ladder. She's a female in a patriarchal society. Strike one. She's an Egyptian, non-Israelite, strike two. She's a slave, not free, strike three. You can't get any lower than she is. And yet God comes to her, he sees her, he hears her misery, and he acts to give her hope and a future. This is who your God is. He enters into people's lives, even those who believe that they're on the bottom of the social scale in everybody else's eyes, and he says, you're not at the bottom of my eyes. I know you, I care about you, and I'm not leaving you. It's incredibly meaningful to her, but it's more than just this nice idea that she holds on to. It changes how she lives. She retraces her steps, goes back to where Abram and Sarai were, and she has no guarantee that things are going to be different. See, faith, faith does not take away your hardships. What does faith do? It convinces you that God will walk through those hardships with you. And because she's convinced of that, she goes back. But she doesn't go back, put her head down, keep this to herself. Instead, she does something very special. She goes back and she talks to the people of God. She talks to Abram and Sarai. She talks to them about who God is. You think, wait a minute, Bill, that's, that's really a stretch. I, I, I don't see that in the text there. Go back to verse 15. She has this baby. Who is it that names the child? It's not Sarai because it's not her family. It's not Hagar. It's Abram. And Abram calls the child Ishmael, the name that God told him to give the child. Only God didn't say that to Abram. God told Hagar 
What has Hagar done? She's come back to the people of God and she said, let me tell you about this God that we've talked about before. This is who he is. And she starts to unpack his nature and his character by telling them, here's the experience that I've had with him. This female Egyptian slave nourishes the people of God. She disciples the people of God. That's what happens when God involves himself in your life. You can't keep that to yourself. Transforms you. You become an ambassador for him. You start telling people, this is the God that I know. This is what he's like. He enters into really, really broken situations and he rescues the people inside of them. It's a wonderful story. I hope that it gives you hope. I hope that it gives you a little bit more confidence in this God. I hope that it gives you confidence regardless of what you've done, either personally or as a church, that God does not abandon his people. I hope chapter 16 helps. But you actually can't stay in chapter 16 because if you do, it's not enough. See, we lose something if we just stay locked in Genesis 16. Hagar has now been promised a son. In a very important way, she's carrying a child of promise. But she's not carrying the child of promise. And the danger here is that God's people will settle for this child. In fact, in chapter 17, very next chapter over, God comes to Abram and reiterates his promise. And Abram says to him, chapter 17, verse 18, Surely Ishmael will be enough. Can't we, can't, God, can't we just go with Ishmael? And God says, no. Because a child is not a child. They're not all interchangeable. The child of promise still needs to come. Isaac needs to come from Sarai. And Isaac needs to come so that his son Jacob can come. And Jacob needs to come so that Judah can come. And Judah needs to come so that eventually a man named Boaz will come who will raise Obed, who will raise Jesse, who will raise David, from whom all the kings come down through the history of Israel until Jesus comes. And Jesus has to come, the ultimate child of promise, because the goal is not, let's build a family for Sarai. The goal is, let's build a family for God. And if that's the goal, then any child that Hagar carries is not good enough. I think, well, why is that? Well, what is it that Ishmael's going to be good at? You go back to the prophecy in verses 11 to 12, and you learn that he's going to be good at hostility. He's going to be good at bringing hostility. He's going to not be good at removing it. He won't be able to remove his own hostility because he can't remove his own faithlessness. And if he can't remove his faithlessness, he can't remove anyone else's either. He can't remove his mother's faithlessness. He can't remove his father's faithlessness. He can't remove Sarai's faithlessness, which means what? He cannot remove your faithlessness. He can't remove my faithlessness. Without the child of promise, there's no hope for you when you're faithless. Instead, what? You're only left with hostility. You see hostility take over Abram's tent and it rips apart the community of God. Each person's hand was against everyone else and everyone's hand was against them. They actually lived out the prophecy that was given to Ishmael before Ishmael was ever born. See, when something is more important to you than building the family of God, when you're faithless, hostility among the people of God is a given. 
It's the only thing that's left. That's why what God does is so special. He rejects Hagar's and Abram's and Sarah's solution, this child born out of faithlessness. And he involves himself, not just to help them, but to put his whole kingdom back online to ensure that the child of promise does come. The one who can take away faithlessness and make us faithful. The one who can take away hostility and bring peace. You can never be faithful until this one comes and takes away faithlessness, your faithlessness, by paying for it on the cross. And the child that Hagar is carrying is just not good enough to do that. So what does she do? She goes back to the tent, and she lives by faith. She goes back and lives in hope, hope that what God has obligated himself to do will actually come about. It's the same faith that Abram and Sarai have to live by as well. They have to live trusting that the one who promised the child of promise is actually going to make good on his promise. You realize that we have the same faith, don't we? Their faith had to look forward to Jesus. Our faith looks back to Jesus. But it's all based on the same child of promise who will take away our faithlessness, who will take away everything that distracts us from what God is doing in his kingdom so that we can be faithful. Let me put a really fine point on this for us. Does Bethlehem Church have a hope and a future? Absolutely. Because every one of you has a hope and a future. But it's not because you're so good at staying in step with God. It's because you have a God who's so good at finding you in rescuing you, in seeing you, in hearing you, in obligating himself to you. And because that God has decided to involve himself in your lives, each one of you, you have a future and a hope that's guaranteed. Let me pray for us while the worship team comes back up. Lord, will you give us greater confidence in you and your ability to restore what we break, then we have confidence in our ability to ruin it. Lord, give us that the eyes that see up above ourselves to see you. Not towering, angry, ready to destroy, but coming near, humbling yourself, engaging us, interacting with us, still directing us, not letting us do whatever we want, but promising that you'll go with us wherever it is that you send us to be. Lord, give us confidence in you this morning that doesn't last for five, ten minutes after coffee, but that'll carry us through this entire next week. And I ask this in Jesus' name.